0: The investing partner starts freaking out, thinking his lawyer is playing on the PlayStation of a shooting game and starts shouting at him. And I try to explain to him, Bob, it's not your lawyer, it's me. I'm actually here in the base and near Gaza Strip. We have some shooting, but it's friendly shooting. It's not dangerous at all. It's just the practice uh, shooting. And let's go on with the call. And they're just blown away. They are not understanding what's going on.
1: That's Yaron Galai, the co-founder and co-CEO of Outbrain, a company you may not have heard of, but you probably will have come across many times. They power the recommendations of articles on most of the news sites you've used before, and I've been into them ever since I was running my last startup, Grabble. Now, Yaron's fascinating because he's exited a few companies, including Outbrain, which nearly merged with competitor Taboola but ended up going public on the Nasdaq last year instead for $1.25 billion. Why did the Tabula deal not happen? And why does Yaron think he's been so successful? Well, he puts a lot of it down to his
0: upbringing. I was a very happy child, grown up in Jerusalem, in Israel. Always loved uh, inventing uh, little things. And so, though I was a pretty bad student in school, I always liked uh, tinkering and building and inventing things. Things that were mandated, like school books and all that, I usually skipped them all. I was, I think, in school probably considered a non-reader at all. But then things that interested me, which were just random random things, I would read a lot. So uh, building model airplanes or how electronics works, I'd sit and read a bunch. I'd say most of uh, my education is probably just from reading magazines about topics i like or books about topics that were interested i was interested in today i read a lot so i love books and everything
1: so what about um you know coming into university years so you've you're a a young man at this point tell me a little bit about what what would you choose to do do you go to university do you go straight into the army tell us a little
0: bit about a a younger Yeah, so growing up in Israel, everyone is drafted when you're 18. So at 18, uh, I was drafted. I went to the Navy. I became a Navy officer on a, on a frigate, basically. And I was a weapons officer, so served for seven years, and then traveled, backpacked for almost a year. And so I got to university when I was uh, 26, I want to say. Not as young as other countries, but it's very normal in Israel. I went to, it was a branch of the Tel Aviv University. It was called the uh, Technological Institute in Holon. I did attend for four years during my entire uh, degree uh, requirements, but uh, I did not graduate. So the uh, department decided not to give me a diploma. I did graduate high school. In The the Navy is very different. So obviously, uh, as an officer on a ship, uh, there's a lot of skills that you learn, not necessarily unless you're, running a ship later, not all are very relevant, but the things that you do learn are, uh, first of all, leadership. It's a weird thing, but in such a short, condensed uh, service, a Navy officer in Israel, at least, is usually the least professional or least qualified on each one of the professions um, that I'm managing. So I had torpedo operators and missile operators and radar operators, each one of them was much more skilled in that profession than I ever could have dreamed of being. And so that gives you a big comfort in leading people where professionally they're much stronger than you. So, you know, the way it applies for me is, um, as a startup CEO is uh, my CFO, Elise, is, you know, in 100 years, I wouldn't be uh, close to her level of uh, or professional level in uh, finance. And the comfort of working with people that are much more skilled in their professions is, um, is a very important one. I'd say, generally, in terms of uh, service in the early years, um, especially if you go and, and be an officer in the Army or Navy, everything is called Army in Israel, is uh, just, you know, at 22, 23, you're probably managing people in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense outside the army for another 10 or 20 years and so when you're out of there you're you have a very very good confidence in taking a small team and and leading it into battle which is exactly what a startup is so talk to me about startup life where
1: you started by uh, the age of 30 i'm sounding like is that correct
0: I started uh, actually during, in parallel to uh, my studies in the university, which is one reason I never graduated, is uh, I started my first uh, startup. It was the uh, one of the first uh, web design companies in Israel, in the world, really. It was just as uh, browsers were being invented. Uh, and so that's what I did for the first uh, few years. Designed probably about 40 sites and did it all myself. So again, this is where... I would buy magazines and learn what HTML is, and learn what design is, and just teach myself how to how to do everything. And it was basically that company in air quotes was uh, basically myself. So I was doing again all the coding, all the servers, uh, all the design, obviously all the uh, the business sides of it, and did that for for a good few years. Uh, so that that was just a lot of self uh, teaching and figuring out what all this um, stuff is. I think through that, I've always had a, I think, a pretty good approach to ideas. And through building about 40 websites and doing all the coding and all the design and all of that, I was just getting kind of more and more ideas, which for me are the reverse opposite of frustrations as to how the web uh, can be better. And that led me to uh, getting out of the web design business and starting my first kind of technology company called Quigo. So at Quigo, we ended up uh, basically inventing the space of contextual advertising. Contextual advertising being the ads that are matched to the context of what you're reading or watching right now. Uh, It's funny that we're we're talking about this in uh, 2022 and contextual advertising is suddenly... In vogue, and everyone is excited about it, mostly because uh, the the big browser and mobile companies are killing the cookies and so companies in the advertising business need to need to find a different mechanism, and it's all kind of a flight to, uh, back to the historical contextual advertising. At the time, uh, when we we found Quigo, which was uh, 1999, we invented it out of, uh, it it didn't exist. And uh, I thought that if ads could be more relevant to each user by using technology to match it to the context of what I'm reading or watching right now, uh, those could be better ads. And so that's, uh, that's how we embarked on uh, starting Quega. Uh, when did you start uh? uh 1999, and it was kind of garage mode. And then in March of 2000 is when we formally incorporated the company, uh, which was one of the most unfortunate and fortunate moments in time to start a startup. Because uh, I think we incorporated the company... Probably a couple of days before uh, Alan Greenspan's uh, uh, famous speech, where he said, "What's happening here is a bubble, and uh, you know it's going to burst." And about a week, two weeks, maybe after we incorporated Quigo, the internet bubble burst, and companies that were pretty similar to us two weeks before were raising insane amounts of money from VCs, and two weeks later. Uh, VCs were basically looking at us and saying, you guys are idiots, like the internet is done, it's finished. It was a 1999 thing, it's not going to happen and we're not investing. And uh, we really, uh, we couldn't raise any venture capital money for four years. So it was uh, unfortunate. I say it was also a very fortunate moment to start a company because it made us very disciplined and robust or maybe to use different words we were like cockroaches in, uh, in a nuclear war where we just became uh, very good at operating the company and, and actually uh, being disciplined about expenses and things like that
1: yeah I think one of the interesting facets of, of a story where um, that hype moment is taken away from you and so you're forced to go on a different journey is like really simply put I know the goal of the business is not to exit, but one way or another, you know, it is often on a founder's mind, where does my exit come from? Like you're running a public company, you've exited to the public stock market, you know, it is part of a destination quite often and if you look at all the companies in the world, it is a uh, consideration of the destination. If you think about the startup like dot com bubble and you know there's been probably a bubble over the last couple of years too if we were being honest in terms of valuations especially at early stage. You know, these things can be really limiting to the reality of when all is said and done and someone wants to buy your company, then then it literally comes down to uh, metrics. Not really metrics at the start of the journey where it's hype and it's excitement and there's a market sentiment and your opportunity is all priced in into the hype bubble. But if someone pays you for your company, there probably has to be users, revenue, growth and some of the other bits and pieces you want. And I can imagine, you know, being in your shoes that Painful, though it would have been at the time to see other people with the money, etc. Totally different discipline like you get through because they'll burn their cash faster and when it comes down to it, take us through, obviously, the journey that happened with you, but when it comes down to it, you have a real business that is acquirable based on real business metrics, which obviously, you know, you can't really see at the time of happening, but on reflection, I'm sure, feels like an incredible uh, reality for you.
0: Discuss. <laughs> yeah. So, first of all, I, I want to disagree a bit about your statements uh, about the exits because um, I think exit is mostly an investor kind of term. It's uh, Investors, by definition, are entering a business in order to exit with a good positive return. It's not necessarily the same for entrepreneurs, and uh, I hope I'm not misattributing this quote, but I think it was uh, one of the legendary VCs and entrepreneurs in the world, uh, Vinod uh, Khosla, that said that an exit could be a great outcome, but it's a terrible plan. And so, I never as an entrepreneur tried to plan or to optimize for an exit. If it comes, it's great, and I did sell a couple of companies in my past, but it's, it's never a good plan. Uh, the only plan I think that's, um, that's really good is uh, to plan on being profitable, on having a great business that customers love and want to pay for. And where you're making a margin, so you can be uh, sustainable for many years to come. And then, as you said, it was a good outcome. So, uh, with Quigo, my previous company, we, we had an opportunity at some point. AOL came and made a, an offer that was uh, pretty good, and we sold the company for 400 million. So, I did do an exit, but it was never the plan.
1: Yeah, and I think that's I think that's really fair, right? And uh, obviously, different motivations as well for different founders on their journeys. And some will be financially motivated, and some won't. And You know, also exits don't all come in the same flavor, right? Some people are very much like, right, you're part of our team now, I'm your new boss. And some obviously have the brand and opportunity to do what they want to do with their company, even once they're bought. You know, famous example of Zappos and Amazon, right? If you think about how many companies Amazon have acquired. Like It just shows if you build a good enough brand that they want, they leave you to it to do your own thing. Obviously citing some .com uh, era uh, references for you there as well, just to be relatable in our .com story. So take us through a little bit what happened to you Then, what was your experience with Quigo? Like how long were you running that company? Um, any notable ups and downs during the experience?
0: Yeah, so Quigo we did for about eight years. Uh, started again uh, between nineteen ninety nine and beginning of uh, two thousand. Uh, sold it in the end of uh, two thousand seven to uh, to AOL. And during during that time, you know, I guess the biggest uh, ups and downs or downs and ups uh, were the. We just could not get the proper funding for the startup and in the early days in many cases you need that funding and so we did our a round which was the first uh, vc money in 2004 about four years into the business and during those four years we were just kind of in constant survival mode uh, so during that time I did some of the funding with a plumbing business. Uh, Those were one of our funders. Uh, We had parents of employees. So two times uh, we ran out of money and we could not pay employees for a few months at a time. And about three, four months into that, I had parents of my employees say, "You know, if you can't pay uh, my son or daughter's uh, salary, then maybe we'll invest in you just so you can pay them the salary. So I had parents of employees become investors we sold uh, a license to our technology to the NSA or the Pentagon in the U.S., which helped fund us for a bunch of time. That was an interesting story as well. And we ended finally after about four years, we got a, a VC in Boston to uh, invest in us uh, six million dollars, and uh, did that actually almost literally under fire. <laughs> so.
1: Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com/secretleaders. That's v a n t a.com/secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. When you say literally pretty much under fire, what are you referring to?
0: Yeah, so going back again to the army service, you do the mandatory service when you're 18 and then uh, after that you do a month every year until your 40s. And so we were negotiating the first proper VC investment in Quigo, my previous company, uh, this after four years of running on fumes and being constantly on the verge of having to shut down for lack of resources. And uh, we, sign, we finally get the uh, VC in Boston that wanted to invest. We signed the term sheet with them. Term sheet outlines all the terms of uh, the investment, but it's non-binding. So it is only binding to both the investor and the startup when the deal closes. So that took us about four months between the signing of the term sheet and the closing. And we get to the final week of the closing, and I'm called for my annual reserve service. I do that as a—I'm commanding a command-and-control base, a small base, a Navy base, and uh, it's near Gaza Strip at the time and uh we get to the final day before the closing of the investment and we still have just these like 30 40 little things we need to cross out and and finalize in the investment contract so we decide we'll do a whole big conference call with all the lawyers and investors and accountants and everyone on the same call agreeing just working through everything it was a three-hour call and by the end of that call, we just settle everything. We close it and they wire the money, which I badly, badly needed. We were running on fumes. Now this uh, this little base was uh, in the most quiet corner on the beach, a beautiful spot and uh, very serene. And I have a bunker there, which is where I'm doing the calls from. And so, and I thought, do I tell the investors that I'm there or not? and then it's too much information like reserve service and gaza strip and all that i'll just have them kind of think i'm taking the call from the office in tel aviv anyway we start the call this three-hour call with about 25 people from the u.s the investors the bankers accountants and lawyers and uh about five minutes into it uh the it's the monthly kind of shooting range that starts uh, by by the soldiers. They're doing all the uh, shooting exercise for the next couple of hours. And so shooting starts, and it's very, very noisy. Mm-hmm. And the partner, the investing partner, starts freaking out thinking his lawyer is playing on the PlayStation of a shooting game and starts shouting at him. And I try to explain to him, Bob, it's not your lawyer, it's me. I'm actually here in the base, and near Gaza Strip, we have some shooting, but it's friendly, it's friendly shooting, it's not dangerous at all, it's just uh, kind of the practice uh, shooting, and let's go on with the call, and they're just blown away. They, they are not understanding what's going on. Anyway, I convinced them to go on with the call. We do that for about three hours, and uh, we finish the call, and then the investors say, we just need five minutes on mute before we finalize everything. We got through everything. They come back uh, from the mute and they say, "Since the term sheet is non-binding, uh, they tell us we decided to drop out of the deal. We can't have founders in a war zone." And I said, "Bob, it's not a war zone. It's uh, this was friendly fire. You, you know, the company is as good as it was three hours ago, and you loved it. And I was basically begging for my, for my business life. What, what can we do to get this done? Because if not, I really had to shut down the company." Uh, And so after a few minutes of begging, they come back and say, "Okay, we're we're willing to go ahead with the deal and make the investment today if we add one line to the agreement, which states that if uh, within 45 days you and your co-founder do not relocate to the U.S. and become residents of the United States, you lose the entirety of your company. So we get 100 percent of uh, the shares in the company. And I had no choice. They knew I had no choice. I was with basically a gun to my head on this. And uh, I said, okay. Out of those 45 days, I still had about 20 days that I was stuck in the base. But day 44, I was living in uh, New York. So that's how I moved here.
1: That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. I mean, but I find that so interesting because... Your, you know, we talk about investors sometimes. It's like, you know, it's building a relationship, like it is getting married to someone. You know, these are people putting serious money in, but they also have quite, you know, reasonable control, as, as they often should. And um, did that not start your relationship off on like a negative vibe, or did you just move on and just crack on because you both understood the desperation on both sides, I guess?
0: Yeah, so... How should I say this? Uh, we In my next company Outbrain… Say it like Al-Brain, an Israeli, uh, like you <laughs> don't bullshit and you get straight to the point. <laughs> yeah, so in my ne- next company Outbrain, uh, that was not a uh, VC I chose to work with. Uh, so I'll say it that way. I, I think, I, I'm not sure the move to the US was actually, in hindsight, I don't think the move to the US was actually the most important thing. I think uh, they may have been viewing that as an opportunity to just get the entire company for a very low price. But, uh, you know, I think in any startup that is VC funded, there's probably 80 percent that is shared aspirations between the founders and the investors. And then there is 20 or 30 percent that is uh, misaligned. And as I said before, investors come in to do an exit. That's the only thing they're interested in is doing an exit. Uh, While for the entrepreneur, sometimes it's important. Sometimes, you know, it's the work of life and they want to be just doing the, the company uh, for their, their entire life. So there is misalignment by definition, and I think that understanding how a VC thinks and trying to work towards those two sometimes misaligned goals is uh, one of the superpowers of entrepreneurs. Okay,
1: so you moved to the US, um, did you have family at that time?
0: I had my first uh, son born a few months before that incident. And, uh, yeah, incident indeed. And uh, I'm assuming they came with you? Uh, they came with me, so we knew. Again, on day 44, we were living in, uh, in New York. So the, the first call I had with my wife was an interesting call. I, I thought... You know, I'm either finishing that call without a wife or without my business. One of the two basically had to go. And uh, initially she said, you know, go look for a job. We're not, there's no way I'm moving here within within a few days. And then a few days later, she said, you know what? Interesting adventure. Let's see, as long as, you know, on, on the day of two years, we're back uh, in Israel, which I said, okay, good condition, and let's just do it as uh, an adventure and uh, again on day 44 out of the 45 days we were living here in uh, Manhattan. We still think we'll move in two years back to Israel, but it's been 18 years. So it's just the two years moves with us. <laughs> uh, we've we've loved it here.
1: Okay, so uh, you've built a life in America um, and you are now uh, running a company that's VC funded. Uh, it's finally, things are going the right way. Talk us about how this journey takes you into Outbrain.
0: Yeah, so we Again, built uh, Quigo for about eight years, uh, built a great company, a great team, and the one thing that was uh, frustrating to me was uh, the model of online advertising at the time led to to the fact that even when you have a great team with great intentions, the quality of the ads was not of what I, as a user, was uh, aspiring to. Uh, in most cases, I was looking at the ads of every company, but also my own company, and saying. Uh, those aren't the most exciting ads for me. Low quality and things like that. And so I thought the core, the root reason for that is that much of online advertising at the time, and also today, is optimized for just the price of the ad. So the systems ask all the advertisers, what are you willing to pay? And whoever's willing to pay the most is the advertiser that usually gets the exposure. Now, I, as a user, I care about a lot of things. I care about things I want to read and the topics that interest me and all that. But the one thing I really don't care about is the price of an ad. I've never looked at an ad and said, wow, you know, that's $1.27. I am so delighted by it. I'm going to click on it and I'm going to come back tomorrow. That has never happened. And I don't know any person that has happened with. And so those were the roots for, you know, it was both the passion and the love I have for reading and the understanding that optimizing for price does not improve the user experience and those two are the the two things i brought together to found uh, outbrain
1: i guess before you founded outbrain i mean did you start outbrain whilst you were still running the last company how did this journey one how does one journey end and another one start because you know you mentioned at this point and I'd like to just connect these things together. You moved to New York within the 44 days. You're moving back in two years. You're 18 years later, uh, you founded an enormous behemoth uh, that you've taken public. But, you know, there's this bit in between that we're not quite clear of. So what what happened to your journey in the last company? And like, what was one of the greatest reflections you had from that journey that you used to start Outbrain in terms
0: of, uh, thank God I learned that lesson from this
1: company, I'm taking that into this one?
0: Yeah. Oh, so lessons, you learn them uh, daily. And I think uh, that's one of the, the most important attributes for entrepreneurs is to be uh, lifelong learners. Again, if you're doing, you're making mistakes. If you're building, you're making mistakes. Uh, and it's inevitable and I don't lose any sleep over, over mistakes done. I do lose sleep over not learning from them. And so I think there's a lot of learnings that I, I took from Quigo to, into building this. The reason to start this, so as we were kind of scaling the uh, the business and getting to the range of $100 million in, in annual revenue, again, I was, I was looking at the product that I built <laughs> with my team and trying to think, what if there was a better business to be had, if we could kind of disrupt our own business, what would that look like? And to me, uh, the conclusion was, uh, instead of thinking of ads as interruptions, it was, uh, let's build a, an engine that would recommend both uh, stories and ads. Ads could be amazing if uh, they are recommended to me and, and are interesting enough. And uh, you know, I think there's always the, the great example of Super Bowl ads. There's a lot of people that are just sitting through the ads of the Super Bowl because they're of, of good, good value. And I was thinking about doing that at Quigo, my previous company. I did raise it with uh, the board. At the time, we decided as a board that it was not right to start investing in that within Quigo uh, for a few reasons. Uh, A, we were really striving towards uh, better profitability. And B, we started having interest from companies like Yahoo and AOL that were... They saw Google's success with contextual advertising, and they wanted their own technology. And so we started having uh, those discussions, and that's not a good time for, for investments. Uh, so in agreement with my board, I started moonlighting on that outside of Quigo while still running Quigo. And we finished the uh, acquisition process with uh, with a few potential buyers and ultimately sold to AOL. Uh, I think it was the right time to sell. Again, it, selling a company is, should never be a plan, but it can be a great outcome. And it was a great outcome for us.
1: And when you say a great outcome for you, one of the things that our guests always talk about um, you know, is the terms. So obviously there's uh, you know the disclosure of uh, how much a company's bought for, uh, but then there's also how long you have to stay. How did you negotiate those terms? What was the sense of the deal
0: for us that you can share? Quigo was acquired for nearly four hundred million dollars in cash, and uh, in terms of staying, so uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, negotiate not staying with the acquisition. I stayed with Quigo through the day, the day of the acquisition. I think part of that privilege was uh, that the company was really operating at a good level the trains were running on time and they were just buying the uh an operating business so uh, you know we were past the product market fit phase uh, again about 100 million dollars in annual revenue so customers were obviously liking it and they viewed the the biggest value of it as as being a core part of uh, AOL's advertising business, so uh, it wasn't as critical for them. I made it clear up front that part of my conditions in doing this is uh, I'm off to inventing the next phase, which is recommendation engines, and I'm not going to be a long-term. Part of this, you know, a funny anecdote, which is, uh, I guess, with working with uh, big corporate companies, is uh, they they did insist that I sign, stay, engaged as an advisor for the company for the whole transition. I said sure, so I was a paid advisor for either six or twelve months after the acquisition. And I was, you know, rolling up my sleeves to make sure the, uh, the whole acquisition and uh, integration is very successful. Uh, the number of calls I got during that period, uh, zero. <laughs> so, Not even a single one. And, uh, you know, it's a uh, sign of good leadership. Yeah, I guess they were thrilled with the acquisition. I heard from the folks that acquired the company years later, they made multiples and returns on the acquisition. I think they were very satisfied with the technology and the product. Too. It all good. So
1: let's talk about the day. The day you sold your company for $400 million and confirmed there's no golden handcuffs, you don't have to stay. What do you do that day? What do you do the next day? Did you take your wife and, and son out for dinner? Did you just crash for a week? What happens?
0: So the, the day the deal would close was not totally known until almost 24 hours before. It was moving around and it could have been... About two weeks before, we thought there was no deal at all, and so we weren't really sure when it would happen. I was getting a little impatient with uh, funding or starting to talk to investors about my, my new company, Outbrain, and I scheduled way in advance, I scheduled a day of um, travel to see potential investors in California. Uh, it happened to be the, the day after we announced the, uh, the selling of the company. And since I was funding my new company out of, out of pocket, I basically made all the reservations uh, the, way, the way I would. <laughs> so, which is to say, very cheaply. And so uh, the way the, the next few hours uh, worked out was we gathered the entire company at 2, 3 p.m., something like that, and did a town hall, announced the acquisition of Quigo. That was very exciting. Uh, from there, I went to the airport and uh, boarded by a terrible red-eye flight, so one of those nasty ones which lands at 1 or 2 a.m. in California. I got basically the worst ticket on the plane, so it was the middle seat, last row, non-reclining, next to the toilets, and so I couldn't even recline with my seat or or sleep that, that entire flight. I landed and uh, I booked the night, again, because I was paying for the whole thing myself. I booked uh, the night in the Motel 8, which in the U.S. is one of the worst, uh, kind of the cheapest, I'd say, motels you can reserve. I go there. I get there about 2 a.m. I'm dead. My first uh, meeting with a VC with Sequoia is 8 8 a.m., I get there, and uh, there's this little cage, so there's no lobby or reception. There's a little cage where you knock on the on the window, and in the cage, uh, there's the the guy that gives you the keys. And I tell him, I'm finally here, checking in for my night. And he said, oh, it's Motel 8. If you don't show up until 8 p.m., we give away your room, so there's no rooms. I so, damn it. What do I do now? I have important meetings at 8 a.m. I haven't slept uh, my whole my whole flight what do i do and uh then he said you know what there's uh this uh, mcdonald's or jack in the box around the corner which is open 24 7. maybe go there for an hour and maybe come back and i'll see what i can do and so that's what i did i spent the night after selling my company for 400 million at a um, jack in the box after an hour, I came back. Uh, there's one thing in the story which I uh, always regret for my whole life, is I never asked the guy in the cage what actually happened during that hour. But when I got back after that hour, he gave me a key and said, okay, your room is ready. So uh, I'm not sure like, if he kicked someone out of the room. I, I have no idea. But that was uh, how I celebrated the uh, sale of my company. Yeah,
1: very flashy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Are you someone who, I guess because of your career and, you know, the high-stress environment that you found yourself in with some of these fast-paced decisions and realities, do you find yourself just not needing to take any kind of break in between gigs? So, you know, did you get straight into Outbrain not even, like, a day off? What well, I know it's, like, very American. I don't know if that's very Israeli. You tell me.
0: I, look, in hindsight, I think uh, taking a month or so would, would probably have been... Uh, a nice break. Uh, the last day I, I recently did the math that the last day in my life where I was not a full-time CEO slash startup founder was in 1998, and so since then it's been just straight, always having to make payroll, basically as a as a founder CEO. I do try to balance, um, you know, as much as possible. So as an entrepreneur, you're always working. There's no, you're dreaming at night about investments and cap tables and making payroll and and, uh, satisfying customers. uh, There's just no way around it. But I do try, for example, my co-founder at Outbrain and I served together in the Navy, and uh, we try to sail, or we do sail, every single year together for at least a week. And so it's still work and the the brain never stops, but uh, it's baking in some of those things into the entrepreneurial path.
1: So talk to us about Outbrain. So what was the original proposition and does it still do the same thing today
0: as it did when you first presented a pitch deck to your investors? Yeah, so that's one of the things I'm most proud of is if you look at the actual mock-ups in our first business plan and what we do today about 15 years later, it's almost exactly the same. It's, uh, the vision was all there. Still, as with any startup, if I look at the path to getting from uh, the original pitch deck to where we are today, uh, we had some huge pivots where, you know, I wasn't sure the the company would even survive. The entire idea was to build a recommendation engine for publishers, for magazine and newspaper and blog owners. And uh, at the time content was generally presented to the users in what's called reverse chronological order. So whatever was published last is what you would see, and that was it. Could be that four stories down is a life-changing story for you, but you wouldn't see it because uh, that's not how things were recommended. And so AppBrain really pioneered the whole space of uh, recommendation, recommendation engines for publishers. Today, it's almost how the user, the entire user experience is uh, built. If you look at some of our partners like CNN or Washington Post or folks like that, uh, you'll see the entire user experience is really that feed of recommendations. It's what should I read or watch next? And so that is what Outbrain pioneered and invented in the world, and I'm very proud of that.
1: It seems to me, you know, I, I, my last business was in, um, well, basically it was a mobile shopping platform. And so we had lots of content and we did lots of algorithmic discovery work. And so at the time, I was pretty obsessed with Outbrain and Tapula because you know, you guys are the two giants of the industry just nailing this. And absolutely, I think, according to everyone, we're the ones to watch and understand what's going on, how it's going. What is your relationship like with them? As in, you know, is this like a main competitor? You know, I saw when I was doing my research, you know, you always had an exit to them. Like, can you talk to us a little bit about like the story? And I think why I'm particularly interested is, maybe there were loads of competitors, but as I'm just telling you, a guy in London, that was running a startup, there were only two companies worth knowing and thinking about and they always seemed to be not trying to insult either one of you, but you know, it was hard to say which one was better than the other. It was just that there were just two really enormous ones, right? It's like saying, what's better, Twitter or Instagram? And it's like, well, what's your use case? You know, it was kind of like, you know, these are the big dogs of this space. So how has your relationship with having one major competitor been and
0: how has it helped fuel you? Yeah, so Taboola is a, a very uh, good competitor. They're a good company. You know, I like uh, the core idea of their product because I think Outbrain was the inspiration. You know, Israel is a very small entrepreneurial uh, community, and in their early years, they were doing something very different, and uh, Adam, the uh, CEO, actually asked. Uh, it was the first-time entrepreneur and. A somewhat different business and asked for help with uh, mentorship. So I actually helped them uh, quite a lot along the way with uh, getting their, uh, some of their venture backing and uh, their initial customers were all ones uh, that we helped them with. And, uh, you know, ultimately uh, they viewed, uh, I, I'd say we're very inspired by uh, our innovations and business model and uh, decided to change their business and uh, walk walk in our footsteps. Uh, I think they've done a very good job. Today, the the way I think of the business is um, the biggest competition that we have at Outbrain is the competition for the advertisers revenue. Those are the folks that pay us. And in that aspect, we compete vigorously with companies like Google and Facebook and some of the others uh, that you mentioned, like Twitter. Those, those are basically where most of the advertisers are putting most of their budgets, and it's on us, on brain, to attract those budgets from places like Google and Facebook. You know as it relates to just this specificity of being uh powering recommendations on publishers uh, there are a few others uh, including the uk a good company called dianomi which i think is now listed in the london stock exchange Uh, a few more uh here in the us yahoo is a, a competitor of ours i think your perception is pretty common where the two of us are leaders in the space how did you feel originally then with
1: this experience of uh, mentorship and then, you know, I suppose it could be, I'm using hyperbole on purpose, right? But it could feel like betrayal. It could feel like certainly a difficult situation to be in that needs uh, needs feedback and conversation. How did it make you feel at the time? Do you even remember?
0: I, I remember. I think ultimately competition is... Um, is positive when it is done on, on merits and features and, and product. And I think for us, you know, I can't speak to the whole space as it relates to uh, innovation on products and making sure we're listening carefully to what our customers, our publisher partners and advertisers have to say and making sure that AppBrain is the, is the most innovative uh, product uh, they can get. Has been really important for us, and it's uh, the biggest motivation in that is competing with others. At my previous company, Quigo, our biggest uh, competitor, our almost only competitor at the time for contextual advertising, was Google. Google made an acquisition very early on of a company with a product called AdSense. Uh, many people think that Google AdSense is their invention, but it's not. It's uh, they they acquired a company called uh, Applied Semantics. And that was a uh, competition that was much, much uh, tougher because of Google's giant size in both search and advertising. And I think it just made us better and better in just keeping us on the, always on the cutting edge of innovation and thinking and innovating on behalf of our partners. So I, I think this competition for us is good. I think AppBrain is still recognized as the leader in terms of uh, product innovation and technological innovation. So why did you take the company public? There were a few reasons, but the I'd say the two biggest ones is uh, we raised about $150 million in venture capital along the way. And again, as I said before, investors invest in order to exit ultimately, and they need a path to an exit. An IPO I don't think of as an exit for us. IPO is actually an entry for the investors in the IPO. That is the first day they come into the company. They're excited about the next 10 years, not about whatever was uh, in the past. But for old older shareholders, it's a good path for just make, uh, giving them an option at liquidity. It's an option liquidity that keeps the company independent and sustainable. And the second big reason is uh, I view Acquisitions and consolidation is a big opportunity in our space. Uh, we've actually been a pretty acquisitive company uh, when we were private. We acquired seven companies, I wanna say. It's extremely difficult to acquire companies when you're when both are private. Every entrepreneur believes their own stories and their own value and does not believe the other one's uh, stories and value. And so it's very difficult to do it as a private company. Uh, when you're public, Your value is determined by the world and you have uh, a currency, the equity of the company to make those acquisitions. And so that was the big second reason. And uh, a few months ago, as a public company, we did our first public acquisition.
1: It's actually a very interesting insight I haven't heard someone talk about before. Um, I completely recognize as someone who has been in those conversations, M&A conversations, where everything is obviously quite cagey up until a point and with private company information you're just not sure really if what you're hearing is true if i mean every founder understandably hypes up their own shit to the max and one day ends up believing those stories and they might not actually be real and sometimes you can't even tell yourself if you've actually fabricated the story and you're so far deep in your own rabbit hole that you don't even remember what was true anymore and I had never actually understood the benefit of being a public company and being able to make these acquisitions. It's a really interesting insight. Did you find this situation then, like, how did the conversation with the potential merger with Taboola come about then? Like, What happened with uh, with that story? And did that happen, I presume, before you went public?
0: Yeah, so that was uh, before we went public. And uh, we thought, it, again, the thesis being that our main competitors is not not each other, even though the emotional perception is. The real competition for advertising dollars is Google and Facebook. They get about 80% of all advertising dollars and it's growing. So every year they're capturing a bigger and bigger percentage of that. It's almost like the duopoly eats everything. One of the important things for advertisers is uh, scale. They they don't want to be kind of wasting time on learning more dashboards and setting up campaigns on more and more systems, they need the scale. And so the whole thesis was, um, if advertisers are obviously liking the scale of Google and Facebook and, you know, both Taboola and us, I think, now generate over a billion dollars in uh, in revenue. Uh, we did last year. Uh, but still, if you compare that to Facebook and Google, it's much smaller. And so the whole idea was in order to compete in online advertising, we need to build up scale. And uh, we thought that the merger was going to be a great idea on that. Uh, we had some disagreements from some of the regulators uh, in the US, uh, it took a year, but ultimately approved. Uh, UK and Israel actually did not yet approve uh, the deal, and I don't know if they would. That was a big barrier, obviously, if regulators don't, don't approve, it's a problem. Uh, but also through that time, I think the we found that the cultures of the companies were very different. And the whole glue between the teams was uh, very challenging, and so ultimately we decided not to wait for a final decision by the regulators and decided to drop out of of the merger.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Um, Okay, so now you go to work every day as the CEO of a public company. Uh, Same routine, same vibe, what's different about your job?
0: I, so I'd say much is similar uh, mostly because we tried to run the company as if it were public for the past about four years. I'd say the biggest uh, difference obviously is uh, that now we're talking to a much wider variety of investors hundreds of investors uh, every quarter that uh, we have to meet and talk to and uh, the investors also think about things very differently when you you know when you have four or five VCS, they know that they're stuck with you for 10 years. Like their stock is going to be e-liquid and you're stuck together. And so you're building by definition for the very long term. And there's not... You know, There's not a lot of exit options, as we uh, spoke about. Uh, with public investors, they always can leave whenever they don't like the story, and so they want to constantly hear, just tell us about what happened this quarter and how is the business looking, and so there's a lot more to invest uh, on the investor front.
1: Yeah, I mean, how have you managed the, the fast-paced cycle of quarter, 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 results, 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 results? It's just, I feel like everyone knows the deep, dirty secret that that is just impractical, impossible, doesn't help you build any long-term value, yet everyone plays the same game?
0: I believe the same as uh, what you're saying until I spoke to a very uh, interesting and smart investor shortly before before we went public. And I said, one of my concerns is, you know, everyone's obsessed with... Uh, with the quarterlies and we, we won't be able to build for the long term, which is what I as an entrepreneur want to do. And he said, you know, there's a large variety of public investors. So there's hedge funds and algorithmic uh, traders and all that, and some of them are investing for seconds, not even minutes or days, but seconds. So what he said does not apply to everyone. But he said for the bigger long-term investors, he said that that perception is totally false. He said, we care about the quarterlies greatly but not because we're investing for your quarterly earnings. We invest for the long-term, what you're gonna be able to do in five, seven, 10 years. But we use the quarterlies as just an indication of your, your long-term understanding and uh, predictability and control of the business. And for us, it's just a long-term indicator. So he said, you know, if I were you, build for the long-term. Do not do artificial things for the short-term. It's not how we wanna see the business. But we will, together with you, look at those uh, short-term indicators to see whether it's good proof of the long-term thesis. And I love that.
1: Yeah, I know that makes sense. What's next? Like, how how long do you see yourself running this? You know, like you said, the last time you had a break was 1998. Are you scared of what it's like post-business to not be doing anything? Are your family terrified to spend time with you if that day ever comes? Like, talk to me about what you think happens next.
0: Well, first, I think as long as the board lets me run Outbrain, I'm hoping to do it for years uh, to come. I am, at the end of the day, a product product strategy and idea person. And so I think at any given moment we have at Outbrain Ideas for probably five or 10 years uh, into the future of, um, you know, cool things uh, we think could really reshape the industry and reshape publishing. and, And we're eager to to try and build those as a team. As to the day after Outbrain, I'm an entrepreneur and builder, and so um, I can see myself definitely taking a month off and probably sailing a little longer. Uh, Much more than a month uh, I think would be challenging for me, so uh, I think if the day comes where I'm not leading Outbrain uh, after a month, I'm probably uh, starting my next company.
1: Yeah, I thought you might say something along those lines. Um, Okay, coming towards the end of the interview now, I'd love to know just a little bit what do you think is like the most stressful experience you've had? Is it, you know, is it the army? Is it uh, it a day at the company? Is it actually something else that, you know, took you by surprise and wasn't either of those things?
0: Well, I think in the the army, you naturally go through some kind of existential uh, stressful moments, um, being under fire and, and things like that which are just not even in the ballpark. I think it does give you uh, a good perspective on what's the worst that could happen in building a company and a startup, which I think is the best question to ask daily because if you're, as 99% of startups, you're kind of in existential mode uh, every day. The other half of the day, you think you're pretty confident you're gonna be the next Google, and then you know lunch comes and, and you're almost out of business. And so I think that going through a period like the uh, the Navy service, you just get a good perspective of, okay, this is existential for the startup, but what's the worst that could happen? And if the worst that could happen is uh, we need to go and and find a job, that's something to live with. I'd say the second biggest uh, stressful period for me was a life-threatening um, medical condition that took uh, about a year. and. It, Again, it just gives very good perspective about the things that are important in life, uh, making sure that the family, my wife and kids, you know, are a core part of uh, my life while building a startup, which is uh, an important balance to strike, making sure you know, I leave, uh, leave the office and go and have dinner together, even if I continue working later at night. Things like that were kind of very good uh, learnings from that period. Awesome. Thank you so much, Yaron. It's been a massive pleasure. Thanks, Dan.
1: Next week on Secret Leaders. We've been one of the true pioneers in blockchain gaming and NFTs. We've been building since 2018 in the space. And it's true that like, it took us time to uh, like convince and do our very first seed round. I think it took us almost a year to convince people that it's not just Minecraft where you put NFT and token on top of it and, and create sense of digital scarcity that will work. That was Sebastian Bourget, the co-founder and COO of Sandbox. If you've been hearing lots of chatter about the metaverse and Web3 and you're not entirely sure what it is, which is frankly most people, then tune in because Sandbox is right at the forefront of the metaverse. It's a virtual world where players can play, build, own and monetize their virtual experiences. Tune in next week or you'll miss out. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stollerman, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.